As Father Matt already bids you, Happy New Year and a blessed first Sunday of Advent to you. Today we begin the Christian year and the season of preparation for the arrival of our Lord. And as we do so, we contemplate two truths that have anchored Christians throughout the ages. Christ has come, and Christ will come again. Being a Christian has always meant living in between those truths. During Advent, we look back on Christ's first coming with joy and gratitude. We look forward to Christ's second coming with hope and anticipation. And we gladly accept the accountability that both events place on our lives here and now. The first and second advents of the Lord pull on us. Our lives are held in tension between them. In a sense, the Christian life is like a guitar string. We need to be under tension to do and be what we're meant to. If a guitar string is too loose, it produces a low sound or no sound when it is plucked. If it is too tight, it produces a high sound or may even break when it is plucked. But a guitar string in good tension resonates with a pleasing sound when it is plucked. And the same is true for the Christian life. The Christian life is vibrant when it is held in proper tension between the first and second advents of Christ. Now, I learned some things about a guitar this week, and like one of the bridge pins on a guitar, that is the bottom attachment for the string, the first advent of Christ is an anchor point for the Christian life. Christ has come. We say every week, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. During his sojourn on earth, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God and was enthroned as its king. We are citizens of God's kingdom and servants of the good, merciful and wise king. Every day we should thank him for his goodness to us. He is a good king. He has forgiven all our sins, redeemed our lives from the pit, and crowned us with love and compassion. Every day we should affirm his lordship over us. Jesus is the absolute monarch of our souls, and we await his return as the absolute monarch of the whole world at the end of the age. Christ will come again. Again, every week we say he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the second anchor point of the Christian life. Jesus promised that he would return one day to consummate his kingdom and put things right once and for all. This has never been a matter of if for Christians, simply when. When has at times been problematic. 
because Jesus left the timing of his second coming a secret, even to his own disciples. We just read in our gospel, but about that day and hour, Jesus says, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. The unknown timing of the Lord's return makes the second fixed point of the Christian life adjustable in a sense, like the tuning knob on a guitar. As we might expect, when the knob is adjusted improperly, the Christian life gets out of tune. There have been many instances of this in history. Sometimes it has happened because the eschatological knob, as it were, has been tuned too far. Paul addresses this situation in his letters to the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians had become overly anxious about the return of the Lord. Some of them feared that Jesus had already come, and they had missed it. Others had abandoned their ordinary life and work to sit and wait for his coming. Paul told the Thessalonians, settle down, hold fast to the teachings that I have passed on to you as you wait for the Lord's return. Unfortunately, there have been many Christians since who have failed to heed Paul's advice. Many, many examples. 19th century Baptist preacher Samuel Sheffield Snow famously predicted that Jesus would return on October 22nd, 1844. When the day passed without incident, one of his followers, Henry Emmons, wrote, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday and was well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. And I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. The aftermath of Snow's failed prediction became known as the Great Disappointment. It was certainly not the first time, nor would it be the last, that ignoring the plain sense of Scripture produced that result. Despite the possibility of hypertension over Christ's return, Scripture, for the most part, seeks to tighten our expectations about Jesus' return because our natural tendency is to become slack. This is what we find Jesus doing in our gospel reading this morning. Jesus uses the story of Noah to lay the groundwork for a series of parables intended to tune his disciples' expectations about the second coming of Christ. Jesus said, for as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus teaches three things about his second coming in the passage we read today. First, his coming will be sudden and unexpected. The people in Noah's day were living normal life and knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. It is interesting to note that the story of Noah contains the first mention of it raining in Scripture. 
Previously, according to Genesis 2.5, a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Though I would not stake my meager theological reputation on the idea that it rained the first time uh, at the time of the flood, it would dramatically enhance the unexpectedness of the disaster. Second, Jesus expects his servants to be prepared for his coming by leading holy lives dedicated to the work he has given them. Holy Scripture describes Noah as a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time who walked faithfully with God. Scripture says repeatedly that Noah did all the Lord commanded him in building the ark. Because Noah was in faithful relationship with God, he was prepared when the flood came and entered the means of salvation God had provided for him and his family. It's not surprising that the ark is consistently seen by the fathers as a foreshadowing of the church. God uses the church to rescue people from the floodwaters of sin and death. If you go into a traditional church, even the architecture of the church reminds us of that as the top of a church usually resembles the bottom of a boat. Third, Jesus' coming will bring about the separation of the righteous and the wicked. After Noah and his family entered the ark, God shut the door, ensuring that his faithful servants would live and the wicked would perish. Jesus concluded his teaching with an exhortation, Keep awake, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Be prepared, be about your master's business, or beware. This was Jesus' basic message about his second coming. Jesus followed up his reference to Noah with three parables that were intended to fine-tune that message. We're going to survey them just briefly. And I want you to notice how Jesus' use of figurative language is going to decrease, while the intensity with which he depicts judgment increases. Here we, we're going to see Jesus gradually tuning his disciples' sense of urgency about his second coming. And if we have ears to hear this morning, he will do the same thing for us. Jesus began with what we call the parable of the ten virgins. It starts, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. I think this was referenced in our opening hymn. You probably know the story. Five virgins were wise, five were foolish. Five had oil for their lamps, five did not. The bridegroom tarried, and all the virgins fell asleep. At midnight, the bridegroom came, and the ones who were ready entered the banquet. Then the bridegroom shut the door. Think Noah's Ark. The foolish came later and pleaded, Lord, Lord, open the door. But the bridegroom responded, I don't know you. Then Jesus, who is the bridegroom, gave the meaning, said, 
keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. In other words, be prepared or beware. But what about that middle component, being about your master's business? Well, Jesus addresses that in the next parable, which we call the parable of the bags of gold. It starts again. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. You probably know this one too. Three servants each received a different number of bags of gold. Two servants multiplied their master's money, one hid it in the ground. When the master returned, the two faithful servants were rewarded and invited to share their master's happiness. The one wicked servant was repudiated and thrown outside into the darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. The message, be about your master's business or beware. Unless there be any confusion about what the master's business is or what is at stake, Jesus finishes with what you can hardly even consider a parable. In plain language, he describes judgment at the end of the age. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Here's a paraphrase of what comes next. Jesus says to the sheep, come, inherit the kingdom because you did the work of the kingdom. You gave me food when I was hungry and drink when I was thirsty. You invited me in when I was a stranger and clothed me when I was naked. You took care of me when I was sick and visited me when I was in prison. Inasmuch as you did it to the least, you did it to me. Then Jesus says something very different to the goats. He says, depart from me. You cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You did not do the work of the kingdom. Inasmuch as you did not do it to the least, you did not do it to me. And the message, the master's business is to be merciful to those in need. And it is expected that the master's servants will be about his business. And these are hard words. But these are Jesus' words. Jesus left no room for Christianity that separates faith and works. He left no room for Christianity that separates love and obedience. Jesus calls us to recognize his presence in the bread and the wine and feed on them by faith and to recognize his presence in others and feed them as a natural outworking of that faith. When Jesus speaks about feeding and clothing and visiting people, he is not speaking figuratively. The poor and the needy, the lonely and the outcast, the suffering and the broken are all around us, and all of them are made in the image of God. To put it plainly, the homeless person you pass by daily on the way to work is Jesus. 
The friend or relative you know you should visit, but you don't because they're difficult to be around, is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to live circumspectly. When we despise opportunities to show kindness to others, we despise the Lord Jesus. When we dismiss the little things that our master gives us to do, we do so at our own peril. Even a cup of cool water given in Jesus' name has eternal significance. This morning, some of us may be uncomfortably out of tune with what Jesus taught about his second coming. We may be reluctant to say what Paul did at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, Maranatha, O Lord, come. Deep down, we may not want Jesus to come. Perhaps it's because we're not living holy lives and we were fearful of standing in light of his presence. In that case, Paul said to us this morning, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us lay aside works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Perhaps we find that our hearts are not inclined to cry out as Paul because, quite frankly, life is good and we enjoy it. Praise God. But I would contend, brothers and sisters, that as we obey Christ and regularly seek out those in need, our hearts will become more attuned to the pain of the world and naturally resonate with that cry. It will become natural for us to join with Christians like those in the Ukraine who cry out now, Maranatha, as they long for the day when people will beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and train for war no more. It will be natural to join with Christians like those in the Middle East who cry out, Maranatha, as they long for the day when they can openly say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It will become natural for us to join with the people here at All Souls who are suffering quietly and call out, Maranatha. During this Advent, may all our hearts be tuned to cry out, O oh Lord, come. To the one who stretched out his arms and hung in tension for us on the cross, and who lives and reigns with the Father and the Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.